Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray now in the preaching of your word that um, your Holy Spirit's power would do, uh, do that wonderful work for which you sent your word out to awaken dead souls to life and to comfort, encourage, and build up those who are yours. And may I be faithful to your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Turn to Mark chapter 4, verse 30. Mark 4, verse 30. We come to the end of this group of parables that Jesus has been sharing uh, as he sits in a boat by the side of the sea uh, to the many crowds who have gathered around him. And uh, this parable in many ways closes some of those thoughts that we have been hearing in those prior parables. Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth. And yet when it is grown, it grows, sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them. As they were able to hear it, he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. It's the word of the Lord. Jesus opens this parable kind of like he's thinking out loud. He's asking questions uh, almost to himself. Teachers, of course, will do this sometimes. And sometimes teachers will ask these questions because they think that the students know the answer. And, and, and if you guys are kids in a class, you're going to know that. Your teacher's going to ask you a question because they think you know the answer, or they might ask the question because they know that most people have the wrong answer, right? And the teacher wants somebody to say the wrong answer so that they can correct them. I've, I've done this a few times to our, our students, our youth, even to my kids. So if, if Jesus is your teacher and he's asking, what should we compare the kingdom of God to? And let's say he stops there. What would we use to understand the kingdom of God? What answer are you going to want to give? Something really strong, something really powerful. The kingdom of God is like a tiger. The kingdom of God is like a tornado. The kingdom of God is like a tornado full of tigers. That's what, that's what we're looking for to understand the kingdom of God. But then Jesus gives a surprising answer. The kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed. That's God's kingdom. I was going to bring like my first ever prop up here and bring a mustard seed, and I lost it. It literally disappeared. It is too small. <laughs> but a mustard seed can sit on the end of your finger. We can allow Jesus a bit of hyperbole here. It doesn't matter if the mustard seed is the smallest seed that ever was to prove this point. I think some of the people listening to Jesus might have found this answer disappointing the same way that we might have if we think about it. Many of these people hoped that Jesus had come to lead an army against Rome. And if that's what you're hoping for, you might be a little bit disappointed to see Jesus walking around the countryside preaching with only the clothes on his back. If Jesus really was the Messiah, the anointed king from David's family, this doesn't really look like the kingdom that we were looking for. It seems a lot smaller. It seems a lot less important than Rome or Babylon or Egypt. But Jesus isn't just saying his kingdom is small. 
He's saying that it starts small. Yes, it looks like a seed, but what do seeds do? They grow. And sometimes they grow and they grow and they grow and they grow until they fill the whole garden. And birds can sit and rest in their branches. Jesus' kingdom starts small, but that doesn't mean that it's an unimportant kingdom, a kingdom that is supposed to lose when pitted against the kingdoms of the world. Jesus told his followers, his kingdom might not come and conquer the way that they wanted, but that might be because it had come to conquer in a much more amazing way. Remember last week's parable was meant to show that it is God, not us, that grows his kingdom and that he will grow it in his way. But because it grows in his way, it will certainly grow. This parable shows that when God grows his kingdom by his power, it will grow greater and more wonderfully than we could ever imagine. God makes sure that his is the greatest kingdom that ever was, a kingdom that conquers the earth. But wait, you say, if God's kingdom is meant to conquer, when's that going to happen? Jesus said this parable about 2,000 years ago, and it still looks to us like his kingdom is maybe little more than a mustard seed. Sometimes we even wonder if God's kingdom is getting smaller, if it's losing to the kingdoms of the world. We all agree that one day Jesus will return and then we will see him victoriously defeat all of his enemies. And then his kingdom will fill all creation. But for now, maybe it's God's plan that his kingdom would shrink, that it would lose. If that's true, we might be thinking about Jesus' kingdom very much in the same way some of these first listeners were. So Jesus might be teaching and correcting us just as he was with them. So what is Jesus talking about when he talks about the kingdom of God? Well, if you look at the Gospels, Jesus talks about the kingdom in three different ways. He can talk about the kingdom of God as something that has already existed. He can talk about it as something that is coming in the future. And he can talk about it as something that is coming about even through his very own life and ministry. Something which is now in the midst of his people as he is among them. We all know that from one perspective, all creation is and always will be God's kingdom. He made it. He rules over it. But we also know that since the fall into sin, God speaks about his kingdom as those people who actually belong to him, who call him their God, who love him, who obey him, who would be his people rather than his enemies. Likewise, the Bible will talk about those who are still in rebellion against God as a kingdom of darkness, a kingdom of Satan. God told the Israelites in the desert, that they would be his kingdom, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. God gave them a law to follow. He gave them promises that he would be with them and rule over them. He even brought them into a land, a kingdom where he would reign as their king. Now, when God's people asked for a human king, God told Samuel that they were rejecting his kingship. But still, in his grace, he brought them David. And he made this promise to David that one day from his family would come the Messiah, to establish an eternal kingdom for God's people. So that is the kingdom that God's people are waiting for. When's that kingdom going to happen? When's it going to come about? When is this Messiah going to come and reign? Jesus knew that when he came and people started to recognize him, this might be the Messiah. This might be the anointed king. The next question they were going to ask would be, 
okay, where is his messianic kingdom? How is it going to come about? In Luke 17, Jesus corrects the Pharisees. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In our parable here, Jesus explains how his kingdom can be in the midst of his people already. How it can be starting, but coming about not in a way that they expected, the way that Rome or Greece or Babylon came about. Instead, Jesus explains that the kingdom he builds will start small, but grow into a kingdom greater than all others. That's exactly what Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, isn't it? That during the reign of the Iron Kingdom, the fourth from Babylon, during the reign of Rome, a stone cut by God's hands, Jesus would come and this small stone would topple every empire and become a mountain that fills the earth. Jesus has no interest in taking notes on kingdom building from Nebuchadnezzar or Caesar or Napoleon or Genghis Khan. First, because when Jesus comes, even though he is demonstrating amazing humility by walking among us and serving us, he is still there as the Lord of creation. The one who Colossians says, by him all things were created and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus does not need to feel inferior next to Caesar or any worldly king. He's not worried about whether Caesar is too powerful for him, whether his kingdom is too strong for Jesus. In next week's passage, Jesus is going to show his disciples quite clearly that he is the Lord of creation, just as he always has been. He is not some worldly king grasping for a bit of land or a bit of an army. When we feel anxious or afraid, of this world and its power, we need to remember one person who is absolutely not anxious or afraid, and that is Jesus. There is not one tiny bit of this universe that is not going according to his plan for his kingdom. So let's share Jesus' confidence that he knows how to build a better kingdom than Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great or Xerxes. Because where are those kingdoms now? They're gone. What would Jesus' kingdom have looked like if he had followed Caesar's playbook for kingdom building? It wouldn't look like anything right now. It wouldn't exist anymore. The difference between Jesus' kingdom and those kingdoms is that the best they could do was conquer some land and some people and some resources. They could never conquer a human heart. Many of us know what it is like to be a citizen of a place where we do not love our leaders. In one sense, we belong to them as citizens. We can't help that. But in another reason, we deeply feel that we don't belong to them as citizens. We are not theirs. They do not command our hearts, and we would be happy for them to be removed. But Jesus doesn't just want to be king over a territory with people who have to be his citizens. He wants our hearts. And not just human allegiance that holds on for a while, maybe even for a generation. He wants hearts that belong to him forever and ever and ever. 
One of the major themes that God unfolded through the Old Testament was that the lasting kingdom of God could never be established unless God himself changed his people's hearts. As long as they had sinful hearts, God's people would be a broken kingdom, able to be conquered because they had no love for God. Isaiah 29 is one example. This people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And this fear of me is only a commandment that they've learned from men. A man who lives in a country where loving God is commanded, but who doesn't really love God, is not truly and lastingly a part of God's kingdom. In his heart, he is still a rebel against God. And one day, he will be punished as a defeated enemy. Someone in a losing kingdom. So for God to build an eternal kingdom, it means giving his people new hearts. And that is what he promises. Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is how Jesus' death and resurrection establishes a kingdom. His kingdom. As the Messiah, Jesus comes on behalf of his people. He comes for his people. He unites himself with them so that he can go onto the cross on their behalf and actually pay the penalty for their sin. Then Jesus rose from the dead, which means that all those who are united with him, whose penalty is paid, are now free from God's punishment and are raised again to new life with him. If Jesus is our king, then that old self, that rebel, is put to death on the cross. We are raised to new life with hearts that love God, love to obey him, love Jesus as our king. Paul describes this in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You may not have thought about it this way, but this actually makes the cross an act of Jesus conquering his enemies. Because up till this time, we with our wicked hearts belonged to a kingdom of darkness, believing the lies of Satan, bound by sin. Paul says that when Jesus died for us, he has trans- delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That is why Jesus says he has come to plunder Satan's house. He steals us out of the kingdom of darkness and we do already actually belong as citizens of the kingdom of light. Never to rebel or fall away again. Earthly kingdoms can capture territory. They can take bodies, force them to live under a new kingdom. They can even kill lives. But those kingdoms rise and they fall quickly. And we heard in Daniel that God is sovereign over all of that. But Jesus' kingdom defeats the kingdom of darkness by totally killing the old self with its wicked allegiance and raising us again as citizens of the kingdom of light so that we will utterly reject any other kingdom and forever give ourselves body and heart and soul to our King Jesus. This is the kingdom that might start out looking small and fragile, just a few disciples traveling around in Judea. They're the ones who are beginning to realize that Jesus is the Messiah. But one day, this kingdom will grow and cover the whole world like a mustard seed that fills the garden. It's not a rapid takeover. 
It is a slow, steady growth like a tree. And it will surely miraculously fill the world even as all those big, brash, worldly kingdoms are toppled and fall away like a stone crushing a statue to become a mountain. This is how God shows his amazing power. This is a kingdom that could only have been grown miraculously. As Calvin says it, the Lord opens his reign with a feeble and despicable commencement for the express purpose that his power may be more fully illustrated by its unexpected progress. Even though this is a work that God does by his power, we saw even in last week's parable that Jesus gives his citizens a wonderful role to play in the growth of this kingdom. People's hearts are made new when they hear the good news of what Jesus did on the cross. And Jesus has commissioned his citizens so that we who have experienced that good news would be the very ones to go and proclaim it to them. We see that in the Great Commission. He tells his disciples in Matthew 28, just as he's preparing to go to the Father, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. After Jesus' great triumph, his death and resurrection, he goes because now he deserves to take his throne, and that's where he is today. Jesus, who is always Lord of creation, now earns this special crown as Lord of the church, always deserved, but now specially given because he has died and risen for her. And now, with all of the authority of a king who can say that all heaven and on earth has been given to me, with that authority, he tells us to go and make disciples. By his power, by his authority, with his spirit going with us, we preach the gospel. When we teach our kids, when we build up our church, this is conquering business by the power of the one who has died and risen again. And Jesus promises us that though we do not always know when and how the harvest will come in, it certainly will. Just as he said to his apostles, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Brothers and sisters, when you share the gospel with your neighbor, you are a part of the conquering of Jesus. When a grandmother reads the Bible with her grandkids, she is conquering. When a mom goes through Bible verses with her kids, it is a great act of conquest. When you offer hospitality and encouragement to build up your brothers and sisters of the church, you are conquering. You are dressed in the armor of God. You are wielding the sword of the spirit, the two-edged word of God that can pierce right through flesh and will conquer the world. And you are, by God's power, using those weapons to plunder the house of Satan, to steal people out of their allegiance to sin and darkness and this world and see them brought forever into the kingdom of light. To some of us, that might still sound a little bit disappointing. We can't help but wish Jesus' kingdom still looked a little bit more like those traditional worldly kingdoms that rose and fell through history. You might say, well, that's all fine and good as a spiritual kingdom. It's just not much of a physical kingdom, is it? 
There's a couple answers we can give to that. First, it is never, ever wrong to anxiously wait for the day when Jesus will return, when our faith will become sight, when we will see the curse removed, ourselves glorified, the end of sin and death. That is a wonderful, beautiful, special coming and appearing of Jesus' kingdom that we are meant to long for. And God would never be happy if we took a view of his kingdom today that made us no longer long for and hope for the coming of Jesus and the future establishment of his kingdom. But saying that Jesus rules over a spiritual kingdom is not saying that he rules over less than a physical kingdom. Are you a physical person? Are there any ghosts here? We are real, actual, physical citizens of the kingdom of God here right now today. And because of that, the kingdom of Jesus actually has power in the real, actual, physical world today. When souls are one to Jesus' kingdom, we can see his great commission does not simply stay secret in our hearts. Jesus just said that even though this is a kingdom coming in a way we cannot observe, it is not a hidden kingdom. It is a light that is meant to be put on a stand to shine out, not hidden under a bushel. And as that light shines out, it really does brighten the world. God's kingdom, when it takes hold of our hearts, changes our families. It changes how we engage and love our neighbors. It changes the way that we work, how we teach, how we participate in our culture. Here in the church, we are actually physically gathered. And there are actual other churches physically gathering all around the world to show that we are no longer citizens of a bunch of different enemy kingdoms. Now, we are no longer Jew and Greek and Scythian and Canadian Christ is all and in all. Yes, it is a spiritual kingdom. You don't want less than that. You would never be satisfied with a kingdom where we could just transform a justice system or an education system and leave hearts dead in sin and transgression in the kingdom of darkness. To say that it is a spiritual kingdom is to say that it is the kingdom that only God could build. And ultimately, it is always more and never less than the kingdoms of this world. And what is more... Do you really want to deny the power that you have seen in the advance of the gospel even up to this point in history? Where did you first hear the gospel? Where did your parents hear it? Where did your grandparents hear it? Where in the physical world did God transform your heart to become a part of his kingdom? Was it here? In another city or province? Was it in another country or continent? And where will we take the gospel? The kingdom of God has already gone global. It is already changing the world. Where is the Ottoman Empire right now? Where is the Caliphate? Where is the Soviet Union? Where is Rome? It is so easy for us every time a new power rises up in the world to think that suddenly, somehow, God's kingdom's been put on the back foot. Somehow, we, we've, we've found the worst point in history, and it is today where we are having a hard time. 
But God has used all of history to show his magnificent power over the kingdoms of the earth to turn this little ignoble seed into a mighty kingdom that covers all the globe, which conquers not just bodies, but hearts. Calvin says, if the appearance of God's kingdom seems despicable in the eyes of our flesh, then let us raise our minds to see the boundless and incalculable power of God, which created all things out of nothing, and every day raises up things that are not in a way which is beyond the capacity of the human senses. Now, despite these wonderful exhortations, we do not want to deny the real and at times very painful reasons that we can feel and wonder whether or not God's kingdom is losing ground. I want to look quickly at three objections. Persecution, rejection of the gospel, and rampant evil in the world around us. First, Christians around the world are experiencing terrible persecution or sometimes suffering in in other ways. Paul says in 2 Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Not all of us have faced the terrible persecution that some of our brothers and sisters have around the world or through history, but we all know that faithfully proclaiming the gospel will mean opposition. So should we take this as evidence that God's kingdom is not yet victorious or conquering? I'll give you four quick reasons why God allows persecution even to play a role in an advancing and conquering kingdom. First, persecution exposes false Christians and false gospels. This helps the church and the world to recognize those false gospels. This even makes it easier for us to see those who are not truly Christians so that we can preach the gospel to them, that they might be saved and added to God's kingdom. We saw that in the parable of the sower, that the regular work of sowing seed that will multiply and grow also includes seeds that begin for a while and they're then choked out. Second, God allows persecution to refine his people. As First Peter says, now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, might be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Persecution refines those who belong to God. It is one of the tools he uses to keep his people from turning to false gospels of prosperity and worldly comforts, to rest in the true gospel. Third, persecution actually plays a role in the gospel going out to conquer the world. Paul told the Philippians, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, that is his imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Persecution demonstrates the great value of the gospel, that it is worth trading our livelihood, even our lives for. Paul's persecution reminded other preachers to be bold and preach the gospel. It shows the world how confident we are in the gospel and its promises, that it really has transformed our hearts so that we would be willing to trade all the world for it. God even used persecution to bring Paul into unexpected places to share the gospel. Just read through Acts, and it is a story of great conquest accomplished through great persecution. Tertullian famously said in the second century, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now, none of this makes persecution or suffering a happy thing, something that we are supposed to desire. The fourth thing persecution does is keep our hope in Christ. So we are never satisfied with anything less than the full consummation of his kingdom. 
we always remember, as Paul writes to the Romans, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so, we share the gospel all the more eagerly with the hope that Christ would come soon, that the full number would be brought in, and pain and suffering would end and creation be made new. After persecution, the second reason we act as though God's kingdom is losing is how often we see the gospel rejected, even by those who claimed to be Christians. Canada is often referred to as a post-Christian nation. How can that represent a growing kingdom of God? John comforts his readers with how to think about those who have swerved from the faith. First John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Like persecution, rejection of the gospel exposes those who sat among God's people who were not part of God's people. This actually refines the people of God and gives us a better picture of his true kingdom. This can happen even on a massive scale. Many so-called Christian cultures we know are right now caught up in heresies, false doctrines, turning a blind eye to wicked sin. Sometimes God uses wonderful revivals of the gospel to make many true Christians in those places. But often he exposes those false gospels by having many openly reject him, allowing more people to recognize the true gospel. Who actually needs to hear that gospel? So they can trust in God. Here's a simple analogy. Suppose there is a town which in 1950 had 10,000 residents which claimed to be Christians. But only 2,000 of them actually trusted in the gospel and were regenerate believers that belonged to the Lord. Let's say that that town faces 50 years of persecution and trials. And at the end of those 50 years, that town now has 5,000 people who claim to be Christians. And 4,000 regenerate believers who truly trust in God. From the world's perspective, in the newspapers, when they talk about Christianity, has the kingdom of God looked like it's grown or shrunk? From God's perspective, has his kingdom failed or is it continuing to conquer? That is not a promise that every town will see its number of true Christians grow. Again, or every family will see everyone they wish to be saved be saved. That's not the point here. But what I'm saying is that even rejection and opposition can be a part of God's plan to grow his kingdom. The third reason we often doubt the success of God's kingdom is that great evil seems to have a strong foothold in the world around us. The current pride movement celebrating increasingly perverse rejections of God's design for his image bearers. Historical evils, like the world wars, the Holocaust, residential schools, the transatlantic slave trade, even great evils within the church. People in the church sometimes perpetuated these evils. Think about some of the heretical movements that have taken control of countries around the world. God gives an answer to these evils, which is in no way meant to diminish how wicked and terrible they are. We hear this first from Joseph to his brothers. As for you, you meant great evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God will demonstrate the victory of his kingdom by ensuring that even the most terrible things in history will do nothing but serve his ultimate ends. 
This does not make those things good. Like persecution, these evils are also meant to make us long for Jesus to return and establish his peace around the globe. But until then, God will make a mockery of his enemy by growing his kingdom even through their most foul intentions. It was the Roman Empire, the first great opponent of Christianity, which laid the roads through which the gospel was able to travel around the world. There was no greater act of opposition to Jesus' kingship in history than the cross. They made a mock crown and robes for Jesus. They pretended to worship him. They scorned the idea that he could be the Messiah. And all the while, they were serving God's plan for the greatest conquest in history. The act through which the kingdom of God would conquer the world. Acts 4 says, For truly in Jerusalem there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you had anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. These terrible atrocities in history have not changed God's plan to bring the gospel all over the world. God has even often turned them on their heads to serve his ends, not condoning them, but making a mockery of them. Do not feel ashamed if the history of your faith includes some great evil. If it depended upon some great evil done in history that you would be here now and believing in the gospel, that is God showing his power over it. The conquest of good over evil, which will one day be complete even when the pain and scars of all of that sin are gone forever. It is through growing his kingdom, even in the face of such opposition and scorn and wickedness, that God shows his mighty power, that he can never be defeated, that there is no safer place than in the kingdom of Jesus. If you are not a Christian, it might be because you are so afraid of the power that you see in the world around you. Ideas that are opposed to the Bible or Christianity. Governments and a general population that treats Christians like a bunch of backwards bigots. A dying breed. Friend, look at the kingdoms of history. Look how they rose. Look how they fell. Look at the great wicked things which should have stopped God's kingdom which should have even perverted it beyond recognition. Rome, the papal states, communism. How did they do? Did they win? Did they succeed? Is the jury still out? Are you worried that Christianity is weak because it is old? That it is going to fail because it is so outdated? compared to the new ideas of this world. The point is that it's old. If we include the Old Testament people who are waiting for Jesus, this is a kingdom that has stood for thousands and thousands of years. This is the rock that has seen the worldly kingdoms fall against it as it grows into a mountain. This is the seed that is already spreading out branches all over the world. You really want to bet against that kingdom for an idea that people have held for 20 minutes. 
This is the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, trusting in him might mean persecution and pain. It will mean opposition. It might mean suffering. It might cost you things that those other people in those opposing kingdoms have told you you have to love and cling to. But it will free you from sin. It will free you from the punishment and the power of death. It will make you a conqueror in an eternal kingdom. Paul assures Christians, even in our suffering, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us from his throne today. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger of the sword? Are any of those things going to get the one up on us? No, in all those things, you are conquerors. No, you are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You are more than conquerors. And one day this glorious kingdom will be consummated. Heaven and earth will be brought together and made new. And God's people will be glorified, completely transformed. Our bodies, all creation, to match the hearts that he is making new. The curse removed. The conquest complete. And we will forever enjoy the peace and joy of the kingdom of Jesus. Always hope for that day. Long for that day, but never lose sight as we approach that day of the conquering that is happening now. And conquer rather than cower. Have joy rather than despair. Have confidence rather than fear. Mark closes these parables by saying, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This reminds us of how small the kingdom was then. Jesus was not speaking openly and clearly yet about who he was, what his kingdom was, what it would be. He was unfolding it privately to his disciples so that one day when he died and rose and ascended to his throne where he is today, then they would be able to clearly and openly explain and proclaim what had happened. They'd be able to share it as good news, as a gospel resounding around the world. We can look back at this time when Jesus is still unfolding his kingdom in parables, bearing with sin, enduring rejection and mocking, graciously teaching sinful hearts, he is beginning that growing, conquering work. He's exposing sheep from the goats in those who hear his parables. He's drawing out those who are his from the world. We're watching him in Mark approaching the cross, which would be the glorious foundation of his kingdom, planting the seed that would become a mighty tree, rolling in the stone that would become a mountain. Let us look at these supposedly humble beginnings and praise God for our wonderful, powerful, conquering king, greater than all the little kings of this world, the only one who deserves our allegiance, the one who holds our hearts, and the king whose kingdom will last forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for such a wonderful king. We thank you for such a glorious kingdom. And as those who have been drawn out of the kingdom of darkness, it is not always the kingdom we expected or hoped for. 
Sometimes we hope that it will be the equal opposite of those kingdoms of darkness. Father, we thank you though it, that though it might seem less, it is so much greater. We thank you for the conquest of the gospel, that it conquers not just territory but hearts. We thank you that the work that you do in the hearts of your people grows a kingdom that stretches out to the whole world. And we do thank you, Father, that it is not yet complete. That one day a day is coming where we will see all the world renewed. So, Father, we praise you. Our hope is in you. Our trust is in you. And our confidence is in you. And in Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.